0: Thank you very much for that warm welcome, and I'd like to warmly welcome you to our Planet Talk this afternoon, Adani, Cold Wars, Fair Dinkum Power and the National Interest. Welcome back if you were here earlier for our discussion about food production and climate change. My name is Deb Tribe. I'm from ABC Radio Adelaide. It's a real privilege to be a part of the WOM Adelaide Planet Talks. Before I do introduce our panellists, I'd like to acknowledge that we meet today on the ancestral lands of the Kaurna people. We acknowledge and respect the Kaurna people's cultural, spiritual, physical, and emotional connection to their lands. We acknowledge the Kaurna people as the custodians of the lands and waters of the Adelaide region and pay respect to elders, both past, present, and emerging. I'd like now to introduce our panellists today. Firstly, directly to my right, is David Ritter, hailing from Perth, David is the chief executive officer of Greenpeace Australia-Pacific, campaigning for a green and peaceful future for all. (laughs) That is certainly something to applaud. He worked as a lawyer and an academic before joining Greenpeace UK as a lead campaigner. In 2012, David returned to Australia accepting the CEO position with a determination to make Greenpeace Australia-Pacific's campaigning as effective as possible. David often writes or speaks about issues that he cares deeply about. He recently released a book, The Cold Truth, The Fight to Stop Adani, Defeat the Big Polluters and Reclaim Our Democracy. And he often publishes op-eds in publications varying from The Guardian, Griffith Review, The Huffington Post to The Drum. He is an adjunct professor in the Sydney Democracy Network at Sydney University, a research affiliate of the Sydney Environment Institute, and is an honorary fellow of the law faculty at the University of Western Australia. Please welcome David. Dr Quentin Beresford has had a diverse career in academia, the public service and journalism. He is the author or co-author of 12 books, including *Rights of Passage, Aboriginal Youth Crime and Justice, and Our State of Mind, Racial Planning and the Stolen Generations, which won the WA Premier's Prize for Nonfiction. and the multi-award-winning biography of the national Aboriginal leader, Rob Riley, An Aboriginal Leader's Quest for Justice. In recent years, Quentin has specialised in writing on corruption in the resources sector, authoring The Rise and Fall of Guns Limited, which won the Tasmanian Premier's non-fiction prize. His latest book, Adani and the War on Coal, has been described as a political thriller with outrage on every page. (laughs) And I can vouch for that. Quentin has lectured widely on his research both in Australia and the United States. He is Professor of Politics at Edith Cowan University in Perth where he's taught for nearly 30 years. Please welcome Quentin. Well, just this week, the Climate Council released a report about Australia's most recent and hottest ever summer, aptly titled, The Angriest Summer. Characterised by prolonged heat waves, record hot days and bushfires, more than 200 extreme weather records were broken around our nation in the past three months. In some spots, including here in South Australia, temperatures were hot enough to cook the fruit on the trees. The Bureau of Meteorology has even had to add another colour to its temperature scale to cater for the extreme heat we now experience. For many decades, scientists have warned us of global warming and climate change driven largely by the burning of fossil fuels and the clearing of land. Yet, this week, we hear that a Chinese company wants to build two massive coal-fired power stations in the Hunter Valley of New South Wales. Meanwhile, in Queensland, Indian company Adani is working towards the creation of a huge coal mine near Carmichael in the Galilee Basin. David, if I could start with you, please. Can coal really be so terrible, and it's been characterised as the single greatest threat to civilisation and life on our planet if our own state and federal governments are supporting these projects?
1: Well, I think that's the staggering uh, unreality of where we are, Um, that we have a political system that in large part uh, is enthralled to an industry that essentially manufactures deadly poison. Now, you, you, can, you can mess around with the words, but uh, we now know enough. We've now had Professor James Hansen describe coal-fire power stations as death factories. Uh, we've got Professor Hilary Bambricks, one of the wonderful guest chapters at the end of The Coal Truth, talk about the hundreds of thousands of children who die as a consequence of, of coal dust. And we know that coal is this massive driver of global warming and all of the consequences that global warming brings. So what we have is just this epic disjunction between uh, our political leaders, a term in context I use loosely, and the truth of what the poison that is coal is doing to us.
0: Where does Australia sit in, the, in global terms in the production, use and export of coal?
1: Look, it's a really significant point because one of the uh, justifications that um, our politicians sometimes trot out for not doing anything about our uh, addiction to coal in this country is, oh, Australia's just a big player. Australia has, for most of the years of the 21st century, been the world's largest exporter of coal and we are massively significant uh, in terms of the global political economy of coal. It would make an enormous difference were a government that really had the interests of our country and the full flourishing of our people and the biosphere at heart if our government were to take a stand and say we have to make an end to this.
0: How do we know what Australia's contribution is to climate change? How are these things measured?
1: Well, so each country that's a signatory to the global uh, treaty on global warming is required to keep an inventory of the emissions that are produced in its country. But what we are not required to do as a matter of international law is keep track of the emissions that we export. So Australia sells coal, we sell gas, when the coal and the gas is burnt in power stations in other nations, it goes on their uh, inventories for emissions, but not on Australia's. Now, the problem with that is it creates this appalling, perverse incentive for Australian politicians and business leaders to go, oh, well, you know, we're doing everything we can on emissions. Well, no, it's, it's other countries' business, what they do with our coal. I mean, it's absolutely nothing to do with us. And it's you know, patently absurd, and it is one of the perversities in the international system. And we really have reached a stage where we just have to have a supply-side answer on coal. We need a moratorium on any new fossil fuel Developments, which and a big shout out. Make sure you stick around for the bite panel that's coming up next. Because by the way, we also need no new drilling, no drilling for oil in the Great Australian Bite. We need a moratorium. Um, We need a moratorium on any new fossil fuel developments, and we need to phase out all of our coal-fired power stations in Australia as quickly as we reasonably can and just get out of the business of doing this stuff, it's time has come.
0: Coming back, though, (laughs) to the politics of why we are exporting so much coal, David, can you explain the United Nations' own framework convention on climate change and how that (coughs) does play into the hands of a developed nation like ours exporting so much coal to developing nations?
1: Well, what, what, it, what it enables is, um, again, it comes back to the, um, the basic perversity that we count what we are selling. Uh, sorry, we don't count what we are selling. We only count when we are burning here. We only count the emissions produced here. And there are also uh, exemptions that are built in um, for developing countries because developing countries have done less to contribute to the problem of global warming. I and mean, it stands to reason the UK industrialised first, so emissions from burning fuel from uh, the UK are not the same as those in countries that uh, developed on a different trajectory. But what we need to be doing as a, as a country that, that has great capacity and, I mean, we actually have a... We have a proud history in international affairs. It did not all used to be locking up refugees in detention centres and denying our obligations and stuffing up international law. We used to actually... We we used to be a country that could put up our hand and say, we played a major part in the post-Second World War II settlement, that played a major part in the negotiations around bringing uh, peace in Cambodia. We played a major part in the Antarctic Treaty. There is another tradition in this country And what we need to be in the vanguard of is the drive of technology transfer from developed countries to less developed countries so that they're able to not miss out on prosperity but leap to a flourishing based on clean energy rather than having to go through a period of burning dirty fossil fuels.
0: Global warming isn't coming, it's here, we're feeling its effects. So, how is it that we are living in this level of denial?
1: Well, I'm not sure that we are living with a level of denial anymore. Um, we commissioned some, we, Greenpeace commissioned some independent polling just a week ago which showed that uh, climate change is now the number one uh, issue for the electorate. Um, It was the number one issue in the Wentworth by-election. This is unprecedented and we know why we're in this situation because, hands up if you saw that giant red splotch where Australia used to be when the whole country sat under that uh, human-made heat bubble uh, this summer. Hands up if you saw the two years of mass bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef. Hands up if you know someone who lives in Port Augusta that experienced a near 50 degree day. Hands up if you noticed that temperate rainforests in Tasmania that are never meant to burn burnt, or if you have friends in Townsville who aren't insured for 100-degree floods, or if you saw those terrible photographs of millions of dead animals in the Darling River. Now, in every one of these cases, there is a common strain that runs through, and that common strain is that the consequences of inaction on global warming are now falling upon us. And at the same time, we are noticing that we have political leaders who are making merry and dicing with our future and with our children's futures and their prospects of flourishing. And so I don't think there is denial. What I think is that there is an enormous reservoir of despair, anger, contempt and frustration. When I was out in Menindee last week with some of the the people who cradled those 70-year-old cod in their arms... This is a town of 560 people that is being treated like a sacrifice zone by political leaders who are paid fat salaries to represent them. I do not believe this is a country in denial. I believe this is a country that is being betrayed by a political class and the only answer to that lies in the power and determination of the Australian people.
0: Thank you, David. Let's go back in time then, Quentin, if we might, to a time when perhaps Australia could hold its hand up and say we're doing the right thing. If we go back to the 70s and 80s and start with the Fraser government, what happened from that period to bring us now to where we are with the political system and the coal industry, Quentin?
2: Well, I think you can sum it up in a word, and uh, they captured the system. And If you wanted a powerful image uh, to demonstrate that, there was no more powerful image, and you all would have seen it on TV, when Scott Morrison, then Treasurer, came into Parliament House, normally speaking, not allowed to bring props in. Um, uh, Morrison brought in the most outrageously provocative prop in a lump of coal. of course, Great Big Circus Act made the news, and Morrison was able to propagate the, uh, the absolute mistruth that this is coal, nothing to fear. But just ask a couple of questions about that stunt, where did that lump of coal came, come from? It came from the Minerals Council of Australia. It was given to Morrison by them. He just rang them up and said, give me a lump of coal. The other extraordinary thing about that incident, that if you look at it, nobody's getting their hands dirty. They passed this lump of coal around like it was a football. Nobody got their hands dirty. The unreported fact was they lacquered it. They put varnish on it. So when it was handed around, well, of course it didn't look like it would harm a fly. That's the degree of mistruth. That's the, de- that's the cynical opportunism behind this political class that David's correctly pointed to. So they captured the system. So that's an image that demonstrates uh, the power of that capture. How they captured it is quite a complex story, unfortunately. These things don't happen overnight. It really goes back to, and I'll just be brief about this, it really goes back to the 1980s when the minerals industry, the mining industry in Australia, was fearful about the impact of Aboriginal land rights and their loss of potential control over the minerals and resources in this country. That Aboriginal people, shock horror, may have some uh, proprietary rights over the minerals on their land. And then, of course, late 80s, early 90s, global warming starts to become a political issue and the mining industry in Australia, which is heavily dominated by multinational companies and heavily dominated by coal, understood that if their, if their agenda was to get up, they would have to be more politically active. And so effectively what you see is that a set of like-minded ideological interests representing corporate Australia got together. These are the Minerals Council of Australia, which is the peak body of the mining industry, the Murdoch Press, uh, which is ideologically pro corporation, the big mining barons like Gina Reinhardt and, and others, and the Institute of Public Affairs, which is the biggest right wing think tank in this country. And they all have the symbiotic ideological relationship to expand the coal industry, because that's where corporate profits are made, to minimise any potential political fallout from climate change, to maximise public subsidies to the coal industry. This was the agenda, and they have prosecuted it incredibly successfully. And the way they've done it effectively is massive donations to political parties, but particularly the Liberal Party, Massive donations. A lot of it goes undeclared, and this has been uh, verified uh, recently, $70 million going into the political system. We just don't know where it's come from. And then, of course, you've got this increasing symbiotic relationship between politicians and then their post-political careers in corporate Australia. There's hundreds of them. Every year at state and federal level, they leave politics. Politics is just this apprenticeship. They go into the lobbying industry for mining companies. They go into the peak body organisations, or they go into the, um, the mining companies themselves. And when I was writing the Adani book, one of the things that the, the, the snippets of information that absolutely shocked me was that when when Anastasia Palaszczuk was running the last Queensland state election on her policy at the time of backing the Adani mine, she had Adani's lobbying company come in to her office to help her run that campaign. Now, that's the sort of brazen uh, 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 result of this infiltration of corporate power into our politics.
0: Well, let's talk about Adani now, because it is a very big um, proposed mine at the moment. So, David, can you tell us, please, you've been there, you've checked out the site, tell us geographically where it is, um, what is there now and what's proposed?
1: It's a pretty bloody long way away from here, I'll tell you how much it is. Um, Look, a a lot of people have been to um, the Adani mine site now, and I think it's important to recognise. The really significant work by independent media in Australia on the whole question of coal in the Galilee Basin—it is—you struggle to think what what the country would be like without, you know, the likes of Ga- the Guardian, the Black Ink, Crikey, of course, the public broadcaster playing its impartial role. Um, it, it, what the country would be like without that? And then you think of the NGOs and the citizens' movements that have also been so involved in opposing. Uh, the development of this mine. So, there are all sorts of activists who've been out to go and see Adani. I mean, I, I take my look, I, I love Greenpeace because I'm from Greenpeace, always have, I, uh, love Greenpeace, but it, it's a very, very uh, broad movement and great colleagues from ACF and GetUp and the Mackay Conservation Foundation. This remarkable collection, really, of millions. Of, of Australians that have opposed this thing so I don't, I don't want to claim any special knowledge in having kind of been out to see it but you know broadly it takes you quite a while you have to fly to Queensland if you're not from Queensland and then you sort of fly into the interior or drive a, Takes about eight hours, and then you know there's another two. Hours. I mean, because you're from South Australia, this doesn't sound daunting. But you say this to someone from Sydney, and they kind of go, "What? So it's like on the North Shore?" No, 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 it's a, it's a bit further than that. Um, and you know, you, you drive, and, and when I went out there with um, with uh, a couple of colleagues, there are no signposts. No, funny that. Um, and and so you find it, and then and this is this is a while ago now. it's a, more eighteen months, I guess, um, but there 's this sort of collection of buildings, it looks like a an underfunded 1970s primary school, um, and there 's a sort of Adani has this kind of font that 's a little bit sort of Buck rogers um, you know it 's like a sort of 1970s font imagining what the future would be like. Um, and you look at this sort of motley collection, you think, "Oh, so this is the ground zero of climate evil in Australia," um, and it's actually a little bit, a little bit underwhelming, to be honest.
0: Is there much there in the way of what we would consider to be important environmental um, property?
1: Well, so one of the. <laughs> One of the bizarre things about our dysfunctional and ineffective system of environmental laws is you have this mine that would be catastrophic for the global uh, climate budget, not just in and of itself, but because it could then open up the rest of the Galilee basin. And so, if all of the coal in the Galilee basin was burnt, it would. Um, have an emissions profile that sort of puts it out there as along the size of a small country. I mean, we're talking about a very large contribution to global emissions. A report done in, I think, 2011 called Point of No Return had uh, coal reserves in China and Australia's Queensland coal reserves as the, the world's two largest carbon bombs, so, so unreleased carbon underneath the surface that, that could be set off. Um, So there's this this, uh, incredibly um, uh, significant uh, carbon deposit that needs to not come out of the ground for that reason. But we don't have any environmental laws in Australia that just say, well, uh, the destruction of the biosphere from global warming is bad, therefore you can't push that along by digging another coal mine. Instead, what you have are environmental laws around species protection and water protection that are, again, themselves wholly inadequate for multiple reasons. But what that means in practice is that a project like Adani ends up turning on uh, approvals around things like the, the yakka skink and the black-throated finch, which are, like all species, unique, wonderful, extraordinary and we want to keep them in the world because when they're gone, they're gone. Um, so you know, from that perspective, there's also the, the question of the groundwater, the Great Artesian Basin, under which a, la- a large portion of our um, country li- relies on the Great Artesian Basin, more or less, for its water security. And um, uh, the Adani were essentially given a free pass to the water uh, by the Queensland government for reasons that are related to the dynamic that Quentin was just describing without even a right of public comment in Queensland and the funny thing is about this you can you can talk to people in Queensland who for whatever reason think that it's a good idea to have more coal mines but you raise the question of water and and the conversation just changes because they know it is obscene, the idea that virtually unlimited water will go to a mine for as long as it wants.
0: And coal mines use a lot of water, don't they? Coal
1: mines use a lot of water. In fact, that was one thing we noticed that day we went out there, and I have no idea what it was doing, but there was just a tap-on and water sort of spilling onto the ground out of one of the sort of 1970s demountables that was sitting behind the Buck Rogers sign.
0: David, where do the traditional owners of the land stand in all of this? What rights do they have and how have they been exercised?
1: Well, uh, under under native title laws, uh, traditional owners are not given a right of veto. So if you own country that your mob has owned for time immemorial, you do not have a right of veto under the Native Title Act, the best you can hope for is a right to negotiate. And the thing about that right to negotiate is if you are traditional owners of country who say, well, actually, we don't want to negotiate, we just don't want our country dynamited to hell in order to build something that's going to boil the biosphere, the native title legislation isn't conducive to that particular view. So with the Adani mindset, the Extraordinary stand, and I, I cannot, I cannot acknowledge enough um, the tenacity of the Wangan and peoples peoples uh, who have taken the stand and said they do not want the Adani mine to go ahead. And there are, yeah. I mean, um, <clears throat> Whilst always recognising that, that as we would expect, politics to be complicated in any community, um, and one of the things I'm, I guess, uh, most pleased about with the book The Cold Truth is um, talking to the publisher before at the sort of formative stages of the book, um, I didn't want to do a book that was, um, well, we talked about the possibility of doing a book, I guess, in just my voice, but the much stronger um, structure, we thought, was to have a range of uh, guest voices providing, in, in terms of health experts or economists or climate scientists, some real expertise that, that the reader can then rely on for all the facts and figures they need for the uncle at the Christmas barbecue that doesn't believe climate change is real. But, but. Equally important was to, well, most important actually was to begin the book um, with a chapter from uh, Adrian Buruguba, uh from the Wang- Wangan and Jagalingu peoples, and really it was just a question of saying, look, would this be useful for you to to have this this bit at the front and centre of the book to tell this story and. Um, uh, frankly, that was a, a nice thing to be able to do. It, they, they fought a remarkable, tenacious campaign.
2: It's worth noting too, David, I think, that uh, Adani's trying to make them broke. Adani's driving them into the ground. And this is their tactic. Uh, they do this in India, uh, and they're doing it here. And in fact, it was revealed only a couple of weeks ago that Adani got legal advice uh, which said that um, we don't know to what extent they acted on the advice. This was the advice that was revealed play tough, yep. play hard with everybody, play hard with all your critics. I mean, I sat down with Adrian Barragaba in Brisbane for three or four hours, and you just can't comprehend, as David said quite accurately, not only the tenacity, but the tragedy of the history of the Wagon and Jangaloo people is also needs to be known, and that is. Adrian talks about you know, his parents and grandparents that were removed off that land in the 1870s in central Queensland when the, when the gold miners came and they went into the traditional route, the dispossessed Aboriginal people went into missions and obviously cruel missions and most of them were as well. And the double tragedy that just when the Wagan and Jangaloo people are uh, going through the torturous native title process to get the land back, here come the miners again. So it's double whammy, historical double whammy of race politics in this country. And of course their cause has received no support uh, politically, quite obviously, from either major, uh, major parties, and they fought this on their own. And uh, I think it says something terrible about the Native Title Act, as David suggests, and it says something terrible about Adani that they're running this group into the ground to to break their spirit effectively by bankrupting them.
0: Quentin, um, we know that there's this massive (laughs) carbon deposit. It's been sitting there for some time. So what are the geopolitical factors that have right now made the Galilee Basin in Queensland something that's attractive to miners?
2: Last biggest coal reserve on the planet. That's what it is. And it's been a fight over getting control of that last big resource by major corporations in India. Obviously, Adani's not the only one. Adani's not the only Indian looking looking at this reserve. Chinese have looked over it, of course. So this is the big prize to get this last big reserve of coal. Now, in terms of Adani's business model, he uh, owns uh, private power companies in India. India privatised its power system in the 90s. Adani built one of the biggest private power plants in India. Uh, He's got his own port in India, and of course all this was developed through his crony relationship with the now Indian Prime Minister, Narendra Modi. We can talk about that in more detail if you want to. And uh, he had what he called the pit-to-plug strategy. That is, he'd mine it, he'd transport it in his own boats, he landed it in his own ports and he put it in his own power stations and then he thought he controlled the whole production process and effectively would have a business model that didn't really rely on the ups and downs in the price of coal so that's the strategy the trouble is his power stations of india have gone you know kaput he's highly overleveraged he's one he's known as one of the most indebted companies in india uh, in a culture where big corporations have big political influence. I mean, one of the things that was so ironic, sadly ironic to me, is that the way the Indian political system works is not dissimilar for the way the Australian political system works. It's all crony capitalists, everywhere you look, there's crony capitalists developing these close relationships with big governments who hand over massive public assets at peppercorn rates from which they make enormous profits. What we get is a few jobs. By the way, we don't get many royalties because they're sold off too. I mean, it's an outrageous system, and it's all developed through this linkage between big business and big governments. But, so that was a Adani's strategy, and you'd sit there and you'd think, well, you know, if you're over leveraged and you're not going to get any money to build this and your power company's going kaput and you're in debt, uh, how's this going to work? Well, it was revealed. It always struck me that he don't sell it. He don't sell it into Southeast Asia. And the latest I read from the company was that they were going to sell it into Bangladesh. Because Bangladesh, and this is the tragedy of the geopolitics of coal, that those countries that don't have access to natural gas find it, find it more difficult to get uh, uh, baseload power to ramp up their economies, And they're being sold the technology and the expertise by the Chinese and the Japanese to do this. What we do as a country, we send trade missions to flog on the coal. And this is what's happening. So this is going into... And the, the irony, of course, the tragic eye of Bangladesh is probably the most a vulnerable country because of its low-lying topography to climate change on the planet. And the tragedy that Bangladesh is turning to coal to ramp up its economy, by the way, to provide cheap textiles to the world, uh, is just shows the moral enormity of the way we've got to rethink the way this whole system works.
0: I'd like to drill down into the way this system works. You've told us who the players are, mining companies, banks, right-wing think tanks, lobby groups, the conservative media, but I would like some concrete examples from you because how can all of that override the science, which is, I would say, irrefutable about climate change? How can ideology trump science? What... Give us uh, some indications of how that. Okay, how that when Scott
2: Morrison became prime minister, who was his chief of staff? I won't mention his name because um, I can't remember it off the top of my head. It doesn't matter. <laughs> he came from the Minerals Council of Australia. Scott Morrison's chief of staff comes from the Minerals Council of Australia. When when uh, when uh, um, Malcolm Turnbull uh, was prime minister, this is Malcolm, who was um, you know climate champion when he was opposition leader. His energy advisor was from the Minerals Council of Australia. Malcolm Turnbull made sure that a a, a board member from the Minerals Council of Australia went on the board of the ABC. The person concerned wasn't even on the shortlist, and and she still made it to the board of the ABC. This is the power. Uh, You go back to John Howard. John had a close working relationship with Hugh Morgan, who then, in the 80s and 90s, was the big mining baron of Australia, head of Western Mining. Uh, John Howard, uh, he became, Morgan became one of the biggest funders for the Liberal Party. Uh, He made sure that tens of millions of dollars from the mining industry of Australia went into what was called the McCormack Foundation, which was then used to fund the Liberal Party. And we know that tens of millions have gone in, and uh, we know that uh, organizations like the Minerals Council are given this front row sea of politics. But when you read this stuff in the paper, hey look, like, it's my job to find these things, you know and I'm paid to do that by the university to research this stuff. But as ordinary members of the public, you'd have to be,, you know, reading the fine print of the newspaper to find this stuff. You know, there's this is page 15 down the bottom. Oh, by the way, you know. Prime Minister has appointed his chief of staff from the, from the Minerals Council of Australia. It's not normal, ordinary, everyday political discourse for obvious reasons. And so that's the power of it. And uh, it's an outrageous corporate takeover to preserve and protect the, mo- the profits of major mining corporations. And by the way, they're majority, they're majority internationally owned, they're foreign owned. And they're given massive public subsidies, and, uh, and, and, and the system has just corrupted our politics, and it's become normalized. And unless you kind of get your head around that, you know, like I've been given the opportunity to, to, to do and David's been given the opportunity to do you don't necessarily because there's no public discourse on this. You don't necessarily know how all the bits fit together to create the power structures that run the system.
0: And that's a very deliberate thing, is what you're saying in the book. It's, it's made um, impossible for the average person to, f- to join the dots together. Very
2: difficult. Yeah, very, very difficult.
0: Uh, Quentin, um, you're talking about these power structures. Um, they're not obviously about our national interest. They're about the interests of the big mining companies. So where is the national interest in this whole debate? Isn't it something that governments should have as a a primary driver of policy-making in Australia?
2: Yes, in theory. And in practice, unfortunately, politics now runs to the tune of corporations as a first call. And if the public get too outraged, then that call will change, possibly, but over time. Look, it's said at the moment, I mean, this is how laughable it's become, at the moment, other than than the National Party and Matt Canavan who would die in a ditch over coal, you can't get Scott Morrison to talk about coal at the moment. It's just politically inconvenient because he's read the signs that the public do not back this agenda of endless climate change and endless coal-fired power stations, and endless coal is gone. Publicly, it's gone, and they are now facing an election. But if they were to be re-elected, it would just quietly percolate back because the power structures haven't changed. This is all just—it's all just a mask for the election. What we're talking about is trying to systemically change the way democracy runs in Australia. I could give you 15 opinion polls that show the Australian public, by a vast majority, want the great barrier we've protected over the coal industry, that the Australian public do not back the Adani coal mine. i give you 10 or 15 opinion polls taken over the last 10 years. Why don't we get that? Why don't we get that expression of public interest? Because the system's skewed and corrupt. So the public interest is, as David uh, uh, very well articulated, the public interest is we phase out of the export coal industry, we phase out of our domestic coal, we pursue 100% renewable strategy as quickly as we can, more or less their technology now is there to do that. One of the outrageous things that happened, and I'll just finish on this to show you where we, where, how far we've gone wrong in this country is, one of the reasons we've got very high power prices, under the Gillard government, the East Coast gas supplies were given, the licences to export were given to major foreign corporations. If you live in Queensland now, you pay them of the highest gas prices in the planet and they've got four liquid gas plants along the Queensland coast to export it overseas. The licenses were given to major corporations without any of that East Coast gas reserved for the use of Australians. That's how outrageous the whole thing is.
0: Given that climate change is a threat to the very existence of humankind, how is it that These few corporations and these very few people in the world have such control over us and why isn't there a response that's proportional to the threat of our species extinction that we're actually facing?
2: David, do you want to say something about that?
1: Well, I think there is a response and the truth is that it has come later than than would have been ideal because there are people who are dead, there are communities that are gone, there are species that won't be returned and there are ecosystems in collapse because we didn't act earlier. But who's the we? Who's the we? In this country at least, when I went to school, there was a basic assumption that was implicit in all of the learning. That yes, mistakes would be made and some terrible things had happened in the past, but that you could more or less, more or less, trust that although people in public life would have different views, that they would nevertheless, that they nevertheless had the best interests of the populace at heart, according to their different views, and that they they were interested in things called facts, that they were interested in things called facts and i think it has taken a lot of us a little bit by surprise the willingness of political and business leaders to not take any notice of facts <laughs> and When you have, as we now do, uh, the uh, International Panel on Climate Change, a Nobel Prize winning body populated by thousands of highly qualified climate scientists the world over, that if we're lucky we might have just over 10 years to avert 1.5 degrees of global warming, then those being facts, you would expect that people who aspire to high office would take those facts seriously. You would expect a Prime Minister of Australia, someone who once thought of themselves as a future Prime Minister of Australia, who imagined themselves being a leader and is now in that position. Standing up in that moment and thinking what does this require of us as a country, what does this require of me as a person, and we are not seeing that we have not seen that. But never underestimate the power and determination of the Australian people. There are If we look at the, the example of Adani I think that mine would have been going right now had it not been for hundreds of thousands of Australians who have invested their time, money, and expertise in stopping the damn thing. Now, Paul Keating, you know, he had a great line or two, and I remember one of Keating's lines was you never get in the way of a state premier and a bucket of money. Now, just before the Queensland election, Queensland was offered a billion dollars, more or less, interest free from the North Australia Infrastructure Facility to get Adani going. And because of the power and determination of the Australian people manifested in hundreds of demonstrations across the country and letter writings and emails and phone calls and direct action, The Premier of Queensland had to say, actually, we will veto that. We don't want that free money. That was the power and determination of it. Now it's that, it is that power and determination of the Australian people which can provide a response that is proportionate to the times that we are in. Look, there are 500 people here this afternoon who have decided that on a, at three o'clock on a public holiday, they're going to go and listen to a panel talk about the potential end of the world. If you just look at the people around you under this tent, there is a remarkable, a thrumming power of the people who are just here now. But for so many years we have been fed a line of lack of power, you know, do what you're told Australians, go and dig up coal, you're not good for anything else. That's been the line from our political, think of yourself as consumers, don't think of yourself as citizens, but this is not us, this is not the deep spirit of this country. And we are capable of manifesting a response proportionate to the times that we are in, a response that will not allow drilling in the Great Australian Bight, a response that will not allow the Darling River to be sacrificed. I mean, there there is that old line about, you know, who are you waiting for? We have to be the people we are waiting for because there is no one else. There is us. But we're up to it. We can do it.
0: David, I'm pleased to hear hear the hope that's coming through. But, Quentin, I wanted to direct to you. (laughs) You have said today that we've normalised corruption into our political and economic systems here in Australia. So, at a systemic level, how do we change that connection that's existed for the last four decades?
2: Yeah, sure. Just before I address that question, I I think one of the battles we need to have here is with the broad-based conservative movement and I don't just mean the Liberal Party, I mean people who generally consider themselves to be conservative, and one of the tragic ironies of conservatism, of course, it's been itself captured by big, powerful forces. In other words, conservatives of the era of Edmund Burke in the 18th century propagated the idea that you must protect you know, what is traditional in your societies. You must value continuity. Well, what's more valuable in protecting than the environment. And so what's happened is, and there's a little story that illustrates it, I think, that uh, before he became Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, he's had more positions on climate change, we all understand, than than, uh, we've all had hot dinners, but in one iteration of these various changes he's had, he went down to a, a town in Victoria called Bay Morris to address a Liberal Party fundraiser, just ordinary conservative members of the public. And Tony was given his stump speech, and he realised everybody was falling asleep. So he then threw out this line, climate change is crap, and then the whole meeting erupted in cheers. So in other words, conservatives in particular have bought the line somehow that protecting the environment is inimical to the capitalist system, and then conservative politicians have then mobilised that understanding and engaged in this spurious culture war. We can have a capitalist system and protect the environment so long as we regulate capitalism. But conservatives have taken the idea that you can't do anything to stand in the way of the capitalist system. And that's the kind of argument that we must get involved in. This is not either or the free market system. Conservationists, like anybody else, are going to have different views on where they land on these matters. But more or less, the battle over the planned economy versus capitalism, we won that battle. What we need to do is sensibly regulate the free market system so it gives us the benefits without these massive potential catastrophic drawbacks. So I would encourage all of you to engage with your neighbours because you're going to have neighbours who vote liberal and who are conservative and you have members of your family, but we must engage them in this ideological battle to make them understand that this is not either or, that we've got to have, or we can have, both perspectives engaged in the way in which we resolve our political battles.
0: I'm very aware of the time, and we do have um, some amount of time for questions. I, would, I think Peter is somewhere here with a microphone. Hi. Um, oh, hi. So if you have a question you'd like to formulate, can you keep it as short as you possibly can and please make it a question rather than a comment? So I'll just get you the first person. But before I do that, um, can you just tell us where is Adani at the moment?
2: I think it's fair to say that Adani is in a cul-de-sac. Uh, that is to say the forces reigned against it uh, have been bigger than its ability to organise the political system but it's too early to say that the battle has been won. Basically, the regulatory hurdles are still in front of Dani, that is, access to the uh, water of the Galilee Basin that David mentioned, and the management plan for the, for the threatened species. I suspect that the Queensland government, I'm reading the tea leaves here, are walking back uh, from it because the controversy has just gone on and on and on and on. Uh, so, my sense is, battle not won, but force of the people's movement has really made this a very, very difficult project for Adani to get over the line. And I'll just simply say, Adani told us for years that there'd be international funding for this mine. It's dried up. Yeah. There's no international funding left for this mine. <clears throat> The big four Australian banks were all quietly lined up because they've got seventy billion in domestic coal. They're all quietly lined up to get involved in this. All the big four banks have drawn a line under Adani. All right? So there is no funding for this. Adani said he's going to fund it himself. Let's see what happens.
0: Thanks, Quentin. And also, David, before we leave it, there's been news this week about Glencore bank rolling a covert campaign called Project Caesar. You were one of the targets. Can you just tell us briefly what was involved in that and how it plays into what we've discussed today?
1: Yeah, I have a great fear that Glencore will have learned some of my embarrassing music tastes on Spotify, if um, it, So one of So one of the other dimensions of the, the uh, fossil fuel company fight back, if you like, over the last 10 or 20 years has included... Um, covert operations in various guises, in various ways around the world. Um, sometimes that's about engaging PR companies to come up with um, lines about coal being good for life, or various other things that you will see politicians mouth. And I think both Quentin and I set out some of those campaigns in the book, in, in the books. Um, most, but the revelation over the last few days is that Glencore. Um, uh, world's well, largest coal mining company, I think, um, had this very uh, – had a covert strategy which included um, monitoring a range of uh, organisations of which I think Greenpeace is probably the, the best known. It was the one certainly mentioned in the articles. Um, and so I'd just like to say uh, to anyone here this afternoon from Glencore, uh, thanks for your interest. Uh, and uh, Greenpeace has more than a million uh, members as part of the Greenpeace network in Australia alone, and we're all pretty keen to uh, stop you in your tracks, so if you wouldn't mind noting that down and taking it back to your bosses.
0: We'll start with a question here.
3: Yes, um, I'd like to invite anybody that didn't hear it themselves this morning to uh, listen to Fran Kelly's (laughs) interview with Barnaby Joyce this morning and uh, contemplate the insanity of the creature, his lies, his distortions, his little innovation about uh, it being impossible to measure carbon emissions and contemplate uh, just exactly how are you going to defeat people like that and the whole uh, right-wing establishment behind him, including the Murdoch Cancer, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Okay, do you have a question, sir?
3: Yes, 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 it's coming. And uh, how are we going to do it? This is the question, how, Uh, using the uh, sham of electoral politics where if the Liberals get back, as the speaker noted, everything will, will be forgotten. And if Labor gets in, Shorten will uh, be almost as bad. Well, do you want to...
2: Can I just say about Barnaby Joyce, because this is important. Barnaby has a deep, long-standing connection to Gina Reinhart. And the extraordinary thing about the National Party is the party that stands up for farmers is really the party now that stands up for big coal. And the the outrage a couple of years ago uh, that Gina Reinhart set up this prize called the Agricultural Prize in Australia. You might remember this, it was so outrageous, Barnaby was the first (laughs) recipient of the prize. It was 40 grand. It just looked like, you know, a sort of uh, I'll leave it to you to imagine it, but you can know know where I'm heading, but I'm always told by my lawyers to be careful what I say. Uh, So, look, electoral politics is
1: compromised, but it's not redundant. Sophie Mirabella is no longer the member for Indy because of a remarkable exercise in organising within that electorate. Karen Phelps is now the member for Wentworth because of a remarkable. Now, you know, there are are many people here who would not share all of the politics of Karen Phelps or all of the politics of um, of, uh, uh, the member for, for Indy, but. These were moments where local organising against all of the all of the um, structural issues we've been talking about seized seats in parliament, and I think we will see that more will follow. And it doesn't just have to be on the conservative side. If you think you've got a dud Labor member, you can also organise against that Labor member. We've also seen... Powerful independents come from the, the, the centre-left of politics. I'm old enough to remember when Phil Cleary won Bob Hawke's old seat. But what it takes is grunt. It's, it's really hard work. I mean, we can take these structures on and reshape our institutions back to their purpose, which is to safeguard the common good and our future flourishing. But it takes work, and it takes, I hate to say it, investment in um, in hope.
0: I'm sorry, but time has been called on our session this afternoon. You can meet the authors and actually buy their books. I've read both of them. I'm still in a state of shock, but they will be signing their books just here behind the tent. So please join me in thanking David Ritter, his book, The Cold Truth, The Fight to Stop Adani and Quentin Ferrisford, Adani and the War Over Coal. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon.